The church at Ephesus was praised for their patient endurance and their doctrinal integrity. They didn't bear with those who were evil, but tested those who called themselves apostles. They safeguarded orthodoxy and resisted heresy, but they abandoned the love they had at first. The church at Thyatira, however, did the opposite. They are praised for their love, faith, and service toward one another and those outside. And unlike at Ephesus, their latter works exceed those they did at first. Their love was strong, strong enough to deserve praise from the Son of Man himself. But in so focusing on love and service, they became doctrinally lax and dangerously open. While the Ephesian church prized truth at the expense of love, the Thyatirans did the opposite, prizing love and service at the expense of truth. So this morning, I plan to walk through Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29, the fourth of seven letters to the seven churches, and we'll examine each verse in its original context grasping exactly what's being said there, and then, as always, we'll conclude by applying such truth to ourselves. So that is my plan for this morning, friends, but before we go any further, let's take a moment to pray. Lord, thank you so much for these letters that are just as relevant today as they were then. And thank you for walking in the midst of the lampstands. Our aim is to be such a lampstand, and we pray that you would help us to shine light on you for the world to see. Direct us, orient us, enliven us this morning with your Spirit, Jesus, and help us to become more like you. We love you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, turn with me, if you haven't already, to Revelation 2, uh, starting at verse 18. As I mentioned before, this is the fourth of seven letters to the seven churches. We've already read letters to the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. And so this letter to the church at Thyatira is smack dab in the middle of the seven letters. Remember, too, that while each community received its own letter, all the letters would have been read aloud in sequence to all the churches. And so these verses may be tailored to the Thyatirans in their situation, but they can be read profitably, I think, by any other church in either that context or ours. So let us read the text together, Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29, and I'll be reading in the ESV. And as you are able, friends, would you now stand for the reading of God's word? And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works. 
your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden." Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. But what I'd like to do now is walk through this passage verse by verse, examining what John is saying before applying it to ourselves today. So let's just dive right in then at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, here we see this formulaic opening, uh, which is mirrored in all the openings of the seven letters. And we're about to see some features, some aspects of the speaker, the Son of God, which connect this letter to the vision John received in chapter 1. It says, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Recall the language of Revelation 1, 14 and 15 a passage that takes us back to Daniel and the vision Daniel received of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. God gave Daniel a glimpse of heavenly reality, including a glimpse into the future. And he shows Daniel that despite all these enemy empires and nations, God, through his agent, the Son of Man, would vanquish such powers and deliver his people. The Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, are said to have eyes like fire and feet like bronze. And so we see that the Son of Man here in Revelation is the same as that of Daniel in the Old Testament. Well, we then get this common phrase in verse 19, I know. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Remember with the first letter to the church at Ephesus, the sorts of things the Son of Man knew about the church there. He knew about their endurance, their commitment to truth, their resistance to false teaching. We got all those positive commands, and then remember the word, but, but. Remember, too, that in the letter to the church at Ephesus, the works of love 
which they used to perform were greater than the works that they were doing now, at least when John was writing to them. The command there is for them to go back and start doing what they did at first. But here, friends, we get the opposite. The Son of Man says, I know your works, your faith and service and patient endurance, your love. The church at Thyatira, then, is not struggling with the same issues as that of Ephesus. They're excelling in their love and service for one another and for those outside. And their latter works, what they're doing now, exceed those they did at first. So the church at Thyatira is praised for its love, service, and good works. But in verse 20, we read, I have this against you. Now, they already have love and service, the things that the church at Ephesus did not have. So what could the Son of Man have against them? But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The church at Thyatira was full of love, faith, and service toward one another. They were excelling at that. But they'd focused so much on love, service, and openness, a spirit of welcome, charity, and inclusion, that they seemed to have accepted a false, destructive teacher into their midst. This woman is put on paradigm with the wife of Ahab in the book of 1 Kings. I don't think her name was literally Jezebel, in the first century, but she's compared to this figure in the Old Testament. Now, if you've read 1 Kings, you know that most of the kings of Israel were bad kings. But Ahab, it says, is worse than all the kings that came before him. And one of the things that led Ahab to such evil was that he married a woman who led him to commit idolatry. You read throughout the Old Testament that idolatry, false worship, leads to immorality, false living. But wrong living, bad lifestyles, begin, always begin, with wrong belief. Last week we read the story of Balaam in Numbers with his donkey, And after pronouncing the blessing upon Israel, he led the Israelites to commit immorality. When Moses delays atop the mountain and the people make the golden calf, they end up committing immorality after idolatry. Friends, improper worship leads to improper living, and that is what is happening here. This teacher, who, like I said, is probably not literally named Jezebel, is teaching that it's okay for the spiritually mature to eat food that had been offered to Greco-Roman deities, and perhaps even to perform offerings or participate in public sacrifices to these gods in the Roman Empire. 
Now, Paul discusses this a bit in 1 Corinthians, and he has a somewhat nuanced opinion, but he does say, do not let your freedom lead others astray. That's what Paul says. And I think, friends, that that is exactly what this woman Jezebel was doing. She was taking Paul's comment about freedom to the extreme, doing more than he permitted, And as a result, the believers in Thyatira are being led astray by her teaching. The church was prizing love, service, and a welcoming atmosphere at the expense of truth. And so they're the complete opposite of the church at Ephesus. He goes on to say in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So perhaps someone had rebuked her, John or one of his prophetic associates maybe, but she refused to repent of her false teaching, her false living. And so the Son of Man then says in verse 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed. Now this is clever It's sinister wordplay, because one commits sexual immorality on a bed. But the bed spoken of here is a sick bed, a deathbed. And so those who go to bed with her, who give in to her false teaching, will face great tribulation, it says, unless they repent. Unless they repent. Verse 23 goes on, and I will strike her children dead. Now, I don't think this is a reference to literal biological children, but rather her disciples, those who are following her teaching. And it's hard to know exactly what this means, since so much of this is metaphorical, but you can think of the many texts in the Old Testament in which God judges those who commit idolatry with some form of judgment. So this could mean that those in Thyatira who follow her teaching will meet their end physically soon. I don't know. But either way, we know that at the end of days, God will judge all according to their works, whether they follow Jesus or follow other gods. He goes on to say, All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And that should sound familiar because it's a citation of Jeremiah 17, a passage which was read to open the service. And that text goes on to say, I will give to each of you according to your works. So the God who speaks here is the God who spoke in Jeremiah, who says you can't live however you'd like and expect not to receive judgment. Of those who have followed her teaching and have not responded to this warning, it says, I will give to them according to their works. But to the rest of you, verse 24, to those who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. So apparently there were some in Thyatira who were not bewitched by her teaching who did not follow in her footsteps, but who held fast to the truth. 
He says, to those, I do not lay on you any other burden. Now, this specific language seems to be a reference to language we see in Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15, we read of this council that met in Jerusalem to decide what to require of Gentile Christians. And I'll just quote what is said there, the conclusion of the council. It says, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Revelation 2.24 then may be a subtle reference to that decision, to these specific requirements placed upon Gentile believers who put their faith in Christ. Well, in verse 25, we then get a positive command, and it's from this verse that I came up with the sermon title, Only hold fast what you have until I come. So what you have in hand, and you could think of the Son of Man grasping the seven stars, the angels of the churches, the pastors of the churches, holding them securely, but for believers holding the deposit that's been entrusted to us, the truth of the gospel and the lifestyle it engenders, what you have, grasp that, hold that firmly in hand, and seek nothing more. Keep the truth which has been entrusted to you. Hold fast to it until I come. Then in verse 26, we read, The one who conquers. And again, this is not through military might or nationalistic action, violence, but through holding fast to the truth and being a community of love and service, a gospel community. It says, The one who conquers, who keeps my works, I will give authority over the nations. And this is another quote from the Old Testament, from Psalm 2, which we had read. This is a psalm that speaks of the messianic king, the son of David, who would come to establish God's rule on earth. And it's the same figure Daniel sees who would vanquish all these earthly empires. The one who conquers by holding fast to the truth will thus co-reign with the Son of Man, Jesus, over all the nations, it says. He will rule them with a rod of iron, verse 27. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces. So these nations, and in the past you can think of Babylon, Persia, Greece, but now Rome, these nations who are persecuting God's people are spoken of as mere earthen pots to be shattered by the Son of Man's iron rod. A vivid image. And those who conquer will be given authority, even as I myself received authority from my Father. Again, referring to Psalm 2. 
Well, in verse 28, it goes on to say, and I will give him the morning star. A curious reference. The morning star in the ancient world was thought to be Venus. And Venus is a symbol of sovereignty, especially in the Roman Empire. Some say that a comet appeared after uh, Julius Caesar's death, a comet in the sky, shining bright, which signified to many that he was a god. And so a star, a bright star in the sky, was often pictured on coins, Roman temples, on military standards even. But Christ, it says, is the one who possesses the morning star, not the emperor. And so the exalted Christ shares his sovereign status with all believers who conquer. Well, then finally in verse 29, we get the common refrain here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These are not John's words. These are the Spirit's words, God's words. And there we have the letter to the church at Thyatira. Well, as we can see in this passage, the church at Thyatira is praised for their love, faith, and service toward one another and those outside. Their latter works exceeding the works they did at first. Their love and service was strong, strong, but in focusing so much on love and service, they forgot about the dangers of false doctrine. My friends, this is a particularly convicting letter for me, to be frank with you, because if I look at the Ephesian church and the Thyatiran church, and if I had to compare Myself, my tendencies with one of these churches, I would pick the Thyatirans, absolutely. Theological openness, diversity of perspective, judgment-free exploration, these are things I have greatly valued in my Christian life, and I still do. Such values can enhance a community's sense of belonging love and service, but if left unchecked, they can lead to real danger and spiritual harm. So, while we're not to be so theologically rigid that we abandon the love we had at first, we're neither to be so uncritically open that we allow dangerous ideas to flourish. The Thyatiran church, perhaps in a spirit of openness, love, and acceptance, had allowed a false teacher to spread ideas which ultimately led to immorality. False teaching, bad theology, if you will, is proven such by the lifestyle it generates. And in Thyatira, such ideas generated lifestyles 
opposed to the life of Christ. Friends, it's important for us to avoid the mistake made by the Ephesian church. Idolizing truth at the expense of love, yes. But it's also important to avoid the twin mistake made by the Thyatiran church, valuing openness and love at the expense of truth. May we be a church that somehow, with God's help, can value both, right? Opening our doors wide for all to enter through while resisting ideas which lead us astray. My prayer is that we'd learn from the church at Ephesus and the church at Thyatira, that we'd prize truth and love and shine bright as a lampstand for Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for directing us, for giving us freedom, but also giving us something firm to hold on to. Lord, we are tossed about in this world by many ideas, many competing lifestyles, versions of truth, reality. Lord, help us to stay connected to you, Jesus to taste the freedom that you have to offer, but to remain secure in your hand. Help us to hold fast to what we have, what you've given to us, to be a community that preserves the life-giving truth of the gospel. And as we do that, help us to maintain the love that we had at first, that we hopefully, I think, still have, and to thus shine as a lampstand, shedding light on you. Be glorified through our worship of you this morning, and as we continue to live lives of worship throughout this week, it's in your heavenly name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.